Hello and welcome back to the James Kennedy Podcast. I hope you're all good. Man, what a week I have had since I last spoke to you guys. Jesus Christ, I was in London pretty much for most of last week, um, helping out outside the Royal Courts of Justice, doing a bit of presenting and interviewing for the Free Assange campaign. As you'd expect, it pissed down pretty much the entire time, which makes everything more pleasant. But outside of that, it was a great turnout, man. You probably didn't see any of it on the mainstream media because I, I, I can't imagine why, but uh, maybe they just forgot. But um, yeah, there was fucking loads and loads of people there. And there were tons of mainstream media from other countries, from Australia and around Europe and stuff like that. Tons of uh, media and press there, but I didn't see any of the people that we recognize, such as the BBC or any of those guys. Hmm, maybe they didn't get the memo. One of the most historic and significant press trials of our times, and uh, the news didn't turn up. Strange. I guess they must have had much more important things to be informing you guys about, such as, I don't know, sports or celebrity gossip. Who knows? But loads of people did turn up, made a lot of noise, and showed a lot of support and solidarity for Julian Assange and his wife Stella, who were still fighting this ridiculous, inhumane, Kafka-esque madness that has resulted in a journalist being in Belmarsh Prison with no charge for several years now, with the ever-looming threat of being extradited to the US. We live in crazy times. But it's always heartening when you attend one of these things because you get to restore your faith in humanity. You get to put a bit of fire back in your belly and realize that you're not alone. There are loads of people that feel exactly the same way as you do and they're willing to stand up united in the rain on the streets and make some noise for what they believe. It's a beautiful thing, man. There were some amazing speakers there as well. I got to interview Jeremy Corbyn. I interviewed the brilliant Matt Kennard from Declassified. I interviewed uh, Richard Medhurst, Andy Feinstein, a ton of dudes. It was wicked. And then after the two days, we did the march to Downing Street where there was more speakers and more rabble rousing. And by all accounts, uh, from the people who were inside the courts, all doesn't seem as if it is lost yet on this cause. So uh, there's still a little bit of hope yet that one day, if not soon, but one day, Julian Assange will walk free as he should do. And for anyone that listens to this podcast on YouTube, because uh, I do put the videos there even though that they're audio only, uh, I will actually be doing something different on the YouTube channel because we've we filmed and broadcasted all of the interviews uh, on the Stellar Assange live stream as they went out. But I'm going to be actually uploading them straight to the YouTube channel so that you can uh, actually see some live video interviews out in the rain <laughs> with my hair all sopping in my face. On the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel for the podcast is James Kennedy Podcast on YouTube. That's content that's only going to be there on the YouTube. It's not going to be on Spotify, Apple, or any other platform. So uh, head over there and check it out if you want to see what I go up to. And also, you know, while you're there, why not give the channel a subscribe? You know, why not do that? So that was my week last week. This week, I'm home in the dry. And after a few rehearsals with the mighty James Kennedy and the underdogs getting ready for our show this weekend... I've mostly been talking to super clever and interesting dudes for this podcast to bring to you lucky listeners, such as today's guest. Today, we are going to be doing a deep dive into all things brain-related. We're going to be discussing the brain, the mind, your thoughts, some of the bizarre ways in which your mind and your brain kind of play tricks on themselves, and whatever else happens along the way. But it's a subject that I'm super fascinated in, and I can't wait to pick our guest's brains, for want of a better phrase. He's a fellow Welshman calling in live from just down the road in Cardiff, and he's here today to blow all of our minds on all things brain-related. I'm talking, of course, about the awesome Dean Burnett, neuroscientist, lecturer, best-selling author, podcaster, and all-round clever, funny, and brilliant dude. Dean, it's great to have you with us today, man. Thank you so much for doing this. How the hell are you doing? I mean, I, I can't promise any mind-blowing. Um, if anything, a neuroscientist, uh, we're taught not to do that. That's like uh, that's counterproductive. <laughs> like, do not blow, destroy, dismantle, or obliterate brains or minds in any way. That's like neuroscience 101, that is. So, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. But other than that, yeah, so <laughs> looking forward to it. <laughs> okay, okay, just just to clarify then, Dean is not going to blow any brains, uh, but he is going to fascinate you with his insight and wisdom and all things brain and mind related. True. Keep your integrity of the brain completely intact, absolutely no <laughs> mind blowing. No, but he will not be destroying your brains, he will not be providing any subliminal messaging, N- none of that business is all good above board yeah. stuff. Keep expectations low, everyone's happy then, no one leaves disappointed. <laughs> well... I want to come on to your new book, Emotion, uh, Emotional Ignorance, but I'd mm. like to save that till later. I'd like to do a little bit of groundwork before that to, to sort of discuss yeah. and explore the brain. Um, but I, I'd like to start with emotions, if that's cool, because um, that's not something that we tend to necessarily associate with a direct brain function. Mm. So to, it's a big question, which I'm, I'm sure it's probably going to lead into other areas. What are emotions? Where are emotions? And why are emotions? Um, yeah, the install would be, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, just keep it, uh, keep it on the down note, shall we say? Um, yeah, well, that's something I, uh, you know, I, I came across uh, with this exact question myself very, uh, very recently because I was, um, no, I, I agreed to write a book about emotions. It was, um, I'd done other books and, uh, because I did a book called The Happy Brain, which is about happiness specifically, but in a more scientific way, it wasn't so much like what is happiness is, well, why do these particular things make us happy? Why does our brain like this stuff and not that stuff? You know, and because sometimes it's confusing. You know, like people like horror films, you know, which is meant to scare and frighten and terrify you, but they make people happy. Or sad music, you position yourself. You know, a lot of sad and angry songs. People like that, but that you know, logically you think that they wouldn't like that because those are quote unquote negative emotions. So that was intriguing to me. So I sort of looked into that when this whole big journey about it. Um, book came out and it was went well everyone's happy ironically but uh you know you, you do the book tours and people kept saying to me why are you write about happiness why not a another emotion which um i feel like that was a <laughs> I, I, they meant well but i was like saying why did you write this book why not a different book like, Darwin, thanks, thanks, thanks very much glad you enjoyed um uh but you know, so like then obviously but that kept happening sorry as well that is obviously a lot of interest in emotions as a, as a thing, as a concept. So I sort of mentioned my publisher because they asked about my next book. And I thought, well, how about I do a book all about emotions? And they said, yeah, that sounds great. We shook hands and signed contracts. And the problem was that I thought, we led to believe at least, that the science of emotions, the understanding of it was well-established. Because even in the neuroscience world, at lectures, people just mentioned emotions as like a, and then of course an emotional reaction occurs. And but as if it was like, you know, well, we've done all that let's move this, this now we're talking about the good stuff you know that was like the the basics that have already been covered but as i said and write it this book i realized that oh actually it's more of a conspiracy of silence thing like uh, the italian neuroscience world is going well we don't really know what they are so let's just it's just not just not talk about them you know like like an embarrassing cousin right. <laughs> you, just, you don't know what they do you just uh in the attic and hope for the best and um <laughs> yeah so like i realized well actually i don't think people know about this this is actually really really complex stuff and and it, to this day, it remains that there is no widely agreed on definition of emotions. It's not something any particular people, you know, scientists don't have like, you know, we haven't sat down and gone, right, this emotion is, we all, we all agree, yes, like, let's move on. And that's obviously an issue because if you, nobody agrees what something is, how do you study it? You know, someone says, I'm studying emotions, and then someone else says, no, I'm studying it, I'm studying this. Well, that's not what I think emotion is, what I think is this, what no. I think you're wrong, and uh, X, Y, Z and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, if you kind of define it, describe it, uh, pin it down within certain parameters, like they are this, they they do this, they act like this, or isolate them in the brain, these things you can't really do. And they are, you know, 
although we can see what you know, the effects they have and the, the basic principles of them, that um, they seem to be everywhere in the brain. Like they spread throughout, right. like, you know, like the veins in marble. They just they're just there and there and there hmm. and over there. And this is involved too. So, yeah, to say there's which bit of the brain does emotions is it's it's not how anything works. Right. I mean, what that it was, it'd be a lot easier for me. <laughs> I want to write the book four times and keep changing it. So, uh, uh, so yes, but anyway, that's a very far more complex question than most realize. I think. Yeah, because I feel like the way I phrased the question the way I did, where I said that we, we don't, I personally don't consider emotions to be a brain function, is that we tend to feel them in our body, don't we? You know, we tend to feel anger in, in, in tense muscles. We tend to feel love in our stomach, in our mm-hmm. gut. You know, we tend to feel fear or anxiety, you know, as pain. So I guess we tend to think of emotions in a physical sense, but I guess is that just the way that they manifest themselves? Mm. So they're born of the brain, but uh, expressed through the whole the physiological system that they're kind of uh, woven into. And if so, what is the purpose of that? Is it evolutionary? Is it a survival mechanism? And if so, why do we get random malfunctions of that system, like, you know, panic attacks or irrational <laughs> love? Yeah. No, no, it's like, that's a really valid point. Actually, that was one of the first... The first ever, you know, study of emotions in history was back in ancient Greece, and they, you know, there was the Stoics, the, the Stoic school of thought, which they, they basically thought nothing that can't be tangibly measured or you know recognized as, as an actual thing is technically real. You know, like there's nothing you shouldn't pay attention to things which are purely fantastical or like purely hypothetical. But they thought, well, emotions are real because, like you say, they have these physical. We when we're sad, we cry. Liquid comes from out of our eyes, mm. and that's you know, that's not what normally happens. Or let's say when you feel nervous or scared, you feel it in your stomach. You know, you or your butterflies in your stomach, and your heart beats faster, and your skin goes white when you're afraid and scared. And this is obviously a big part of the expression of emotions. And there is one school of thought which does argue that emotions actually start in the body. Like we experience something, and your body has all these reactions, physical reactions. And your brain says, oh, look at all these physical reactions. That means uh, anger. You know, that means um, fear. You know, so like they say, it's the brain actually, you know, it's like it's the builder taking the delivery of plans from the architect. So, okay, so that's right. what I got to do, is it? And, right. um, that's not the main theory of emotions. I mean, like the, that, that does have a lot of limits to it. And like, for example, uh, you can experience emotions without any physical things happening to you. I think everyone's experienced this. You walk on the road and suddenly you're hit by a really embarrassing memory. And you go, oh, God! You just sort of cringe into yourself on the, on the pavement and people are just stepping over you because you just realised a horrifically embarrassing thing that happened when you were a teenager. But <laughs> there was no physical thing that happened to make you think of that. You just did. Because right. brains be brained like that. <laughs> and, um, so, like, obviously, there's, there's more to it. But, um, but yeah, like, uh, a big part of it is actually we don't just feel emotions, experience them. We actually broadcast them. We share them because we're a social species. Right. So when we have these emotional reactions and we sort of display them to others, that in the evolutionary sense is a really effective and efficient way of communicating with those around you. Right. Like if you, if you, your, your eyes go wide and you're scared, they go, oh, look, that person's scared. Oh God, they must be scared of something. I'll be scared too. Cause right. obviously now everyone's in a sort of poised state. Right. Uh, <clears throat> lots of different theories about why we cry. Like there's loads of, different chemical differences in emotional tears, which make other people feel certain ways and stuff. And it's also a big signaling thing. Like we think about um, laughter. Laughter is a weird one because you know, we can experience being amused 
Uh, we experience lots of emotions, but they don't often involve this massive involuntary spasm. Mm. Like it, it just, ah, because mm. the whole point of laughter, it's, it's a social thing. It bonds us together. Because right. when someone else laughs, we want to laugh too. Like studies suggest that if you're part of a group, you're like 30 times more likely to laugh than if you're not. You know, right. Uh, by yourself, which is why watching stand-up videos by, by yourself is always a less rewarding experience. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh. But when you're part of a big crowd, like ah, you're up, which isn't often isn't isn't that funny. It's just someone, like someone close saying, "Hey, who's from Newport?" <laughs> like if <laughs> if I'm into it, like where are you from, Newport? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, All right, calm down, calm down. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, it, uh, we have different um, different emotional experiences in different contexts. Maybe that's just people from Newport. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I mean, Newport's a lovely place to drive through. <laughs> so it's so it's a social thing. Then you think that 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 is that where things are leaning at the moment? That it's primarily a social thing. It's a communicative thing, which is why it expresses itself physically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, human emotions, especially because we are the, the most social species. The class is ultra social. I know, like people might think, well, humans are very social. We're all with each other. But yeah, obviously, look at any Twitter thread or comments under an article. There's always going to be just fire and brimstone and horrible people doing horrible stuff. But that you have to sort of, that's uh, sort of like a one month thing. But, uh, you know, in terms of sheer raw numbers, there are like close to 8 billion humans on this planet. Yeah. And we are incredibly tolerant to each other generally. You know, we can, human cities can have like 25, 30 million people in them. And people just go about their day. You know, no other species can do that. Like if you put, like if you've done a gig, like you've got like a thousand people watching you sitting there enjoying like uh, you're sitting there side by side really technically cramped in and they had a good time they're enjoying yeah, it yeah if somebody replaced those people with chimps it would be an absolute bloodbath within minutes because <laughs> like, there'd, there'd be like blood and fur and feces yeah. like everywhere i mean I, i've done some tough gigs but uh, <laughs> i was gonna say it sounds like some gigs i've done in the past yeah, yeah you know, there, are, there are some festivals which <laughs> could have a similar vibe to them but um but yeah like that's like just other social species those are our closest relatives evolutionary yeah. and like they can't handle being that sort of group closed thing, which we can. But um, you got to think about how many emotions only exist because of the context of other people. Right. Like you have um, guilt. <clears throat> guilt doesn't make any sense unless other people are involved. Or embarrassment. Like one of the examples I've used before is that um, you know, if you're in your home, in the bathroom, just about to go for a shower, and all your clothes fall off, like, oh, that's weird. You know, well, I'll just speak to my tailor, you know, <laughs> and they just get in the shower and then do it because you do anything. But... If you're like in a hotel lobby, you're queuing for a train right. ticket, then your clothes fall off. That's horrific. That's yes. mortifying and embarrassing. Right. Because other people are there. Yeah. You can sort of like, oh my God. You know, embarrassment only makes sense if other people are you know, right. part of the process. So yeah, a lot of the human emotions are very social just by in, in terms of their origins even. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Man. Well, what about anger then? Because anger is something that can be, well, certainly for me anyway, I can be angry. I can be perfectly angry by myself. And uh, anger can also be kind of just held within oneself as well, doesn't it? It doesn't necessarily have to be communicated. Mm. You can just be pissed off at nothing all day. Mm. Or maybe I'm just talking about me. Anger is a sort of, um, it's a strong response to you know, problems and issues. And one thing we do, a lot of things anger, make us angry. Um, you know, threats to our autonomy. Like if we, because we, we want to think we're in control because our brain finds that a lot more relaxing. If you're in control, something bad happens, you have the option to fix it. So anything which makes us lose control makes us angrier. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem called reactance. Like it's, it's that, that's what that describes that process where you didn't want to do something until someone told you you couldn't. And now you absolutely do want to do it because right. you, know, right. you were told you can't. Right. 
like it, it happens all the time where people complain like oh i can't believe that shop's closing down no it's a, do you ever go no too expensive <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, but no, you can't you want to and that um <clears throat> but you know seen in unfairness and justice these things anger us but yeah like these are things which don't need other people although they often do involve other people and if anything when they don't involve other people it makes it worse like you know if you drop your phone and the screen cracks Stops with your, your, your printers are obviously a real common cause of anger because they oh, just hell yeah. don't do what you want them to do. Yes, yeah. useless. But then yeah. That, yeah, that makes it worse because if you're angry at someone else, you can at least still have it out with them more. Yeah, yeah, say, yeah. Like, I'm angry at you because X, Y, Z, whereas a printer's going to just sit there and not printing and just beeping at you. And that's just more infuriating because, yeah. again, you have no control, you have no autonomy, you have no option to, to vent. So it sort of builds up. The, emotions, negative emotions, will, you know, they're just as important as the positive ones because they're how we process the world, our experiences, our, our memories, our knowledge, and like they're a big part of who we are. But because of the way the brain works, the processing of emotions is handled by the same parts which allow you to feel them, which generate them. Right. So, you know, like, that's why, like, so they say bottle things up is only ever a short-term solution. Obviously, you don't just fly off the handle if someone says something in passing which you don't like. You, you know, that's not how social norms work but if you just keep it bottled up forever and ever eventually it'll blow because right. you know your brain can't keep can't keep uh, keep all this in forever because these emotions need to, need to go somewhere and anger is a particularly strong one for that because um one of the things it does it triggers the motivation centers of our brain uh, very most fundamental level we have two types of emotion approach and avoid so you no know, here's a thing an issue or a situation i can either approach it do something about it or avoid it leave it alone so fear obviously is very keenly it's very, very actively triggers the avoid um motivation like right that scares me give that a wide berth don't deal with that leave that alone don't don't know that anger does the opposite it triggers the approach motivation uh, but often to the point where it's unreasonable. So that's where you get people who are extremely angry, taking on like, you know, little guys that like, were furious, taking on guys like five times their size. Like, <laughs> normally they were like, oh, guilty. Only that guy, when you're angry enough. That's, well, exactly. It's, like, it's not even that uncommon, is it? Like, but when you are little man syndrome, angry enough, like proper Joe Pesci style. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Joe Pesci style, you know, just going out, stabbing someone to death with a pen because cause you're furious at them. <laughs> and um, yeah, so like, these are, Things that happen because anger overrules the, you uh, know, the, the avoid system. And actually, I think it was actually sort of subtly hinted at in Inside Out. Did you ever see that? No. There's a Pixar film about all different emotions. Okay. There's one character, anger. Whenever he's um does something like okay, controlling the the head head machine, fear tries to stop him, and he just like slams his head or something or punch. So that's actually sort of a good indicator of what happens when you're angry. Like right. It sort of it overrules the fear reaction. Okay. So yeah, so it, it makes you want to do something. That's why, like, catharsis is important. Like, people who contact sports or play angry video games or write video games, it gives you an outlet for these you know, the frustrations. Often, inanimate objects just being inconvenient. Right, That's, right, right. You, know, you have a right to be angry at that, but you have nothing to be angry at because it's just pure misfortune or pure you know, inanimate objects not doing their job. And like, there's right. no one to blame for that. It's just bad luck. But you still feel the emotion. It's got to go somewhere. So um, right, that's where I'm going wrong. Then I need to have an outlet. I need to start boxing and kicking the shit out of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've taken that up. It does help. To be honest, it really does. A, right, okay. I've got a bag in my office now as well for when you know. Oh, nice. 
bloody, bloody words. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. MS office, how dare you again? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's me, man. And I know that it's stupid because, you know, there's nothing we could do about that stuff. Like I get like the traffic is a big one for me. I spend a lot of time on the road, as I'm sure you do. And it just drives me crazy, man. You just end up like screaming at the windshield about stuff that you're only winding yourself up. You're only like it, no one else is aware that it's going on. Uh, and I know that it's really stupid. I'm trying to kind of like remind myself that there are things you could do stuff about and things you can't and if you can't do anything about it then you just try and like let it go but i mean there's a lot of things that we should rightfully be angry about you know what i mean we should be we're right to be angry about what's happening you know the injustices of the world like you know what's happening in the middle east right now with the homeless situation we're right to be angry about those things but there is something we can do about those things at some level you can get involved in something or you can put your energy behind something whereas screaming at the traffic you know is just pointless for everybody involved um so it, do you think that is the purpose then of anger is that it's a motivating force that you know it can actually fire us into action about doing something about the things that 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 are frustrating us or that we find unjust well, absolutely. I think that's the evolutionary origin of you know, why anger is like this, because it makes us do things. You know, the old approach, right. the problem thing means you want to deal with it. <clears throat> now, obviously, there'll be plenty of examples where someone tries to deal with it and fails, uh, which is obviously not, um, not ideal. Uh, but and at this point, because we have advanced to a certain point and we build such a complex world around us, anger does cloud your thinking a bit. It makes you want to you know, do something, get you know, solve this problem out. Um, the the risk assessment, the caution part of your brain, which is important, which says like, okay, if you do this, this could happen. That's not a good outcome. Uh, do you do you want to risk that or not? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And anger sort of blurs that. It weights too heavily in one direction. So it's like, when you're a teenager, this is particularly poignant because obviously teenagers are known to be quote-unquote hot-headed or temperamental and passionate right. and stuff. But that's almost like um, an evolved trait is like it's like they're meant to be like that because that means they get stuff done you know, sort of think of humans evolving right. in the wild and the savannah you know just being tribes stuff but if you have like sort of like a nice little cozy community everyone's happy probably even so sort of like oh, we got our resources we got our people we got our little cozy hut great we'll just stay here forever what's what's the, what's the big deal so that quickly leads to stagnation you know one drought one bad season one migration and suddenly everything's wiped out so you get these <clears throat> younger people in their physical prime, technically, who are they're suddenly, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to it's no authority. I want to go and do stuff, and they get angry easily. Makes them sort of expand, branch out. Because oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go over there and find some other people, and then humans become more diverse, more mixed, more like we 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 seek things out. And but these are you know, there's more to do to fix, to to address, to tackle problems. It's clearly a strongly evolved trait. I mean, we we needed to, to get to this point. Right. It's just that now, uh, so sort of, it's almost like our brain's a victim of its own success, and that we are aware and can be aware, especially now with technology and the phones, internet, that there are plenty of things in the world, the whole world, to be angry about, which we could do something about, but we're not going to see the results of that anytime soon. And one thing our brain doesn't like is like <clears throat> effort with no obvious result, no cause. You know, the, right. the good feeling you get from donating money to something is is nice. You know, yeah, that's helpful. But if you think about, it, I want to tackle climate change, for example. I'm going to do all my recycling. I'm going to drive an electric car. I'm not going to take flights. I'm going to live sustainably. So your your life is different, but you don't see the obvious outcome of that because you know yeah, it'll be right. tens, twenty. 30, 40, 60, 70, 80 years before 
improvements and change because of the way this happens. Yeah. And I think that's <clears throat> I think that's also a sort of constant problem with people don't realize with modern politics as well. Like as in politicians make the claim now with the election say, oh well, I'll do this. And then people okay, I'll vote for that. And by the time they the next election comes around, all the stuff they've done wrong or like the the, the fallout from their bad decisions. It's, it's too far removed from it. Like, like austerity is now, one of the last few years, they're kicking our ass. Whereas at the time, people said, this is a bad idea, but no one noticed the effects because it's such a big turnaround time. Mm. So, you know, the, the whole cause and effect thing I did when this happened, there's so much time between those two when it comes to political or major global issues that we don't connect them like, instinctively. You have to look into it deeply. So, yeah, that's, that's sort right. of like an ongoing problem. And uh, the, the emotion part of our brain is powerful, but it's... It, Wants quick results. It wants instant, you know, instant uh, response actions. And uh, the world as we've built it doesn't doesn't give that. So we can be frustrated about other things for longer than we should be. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, and it kind of leads to something that I wanted to explore with you, which is the obviously the big issue of mental health, because mm. you know we seem to be going through a mental health epidemic right now. And my analysis of it was because that you know we our brains are wired and our bodies are. are have evolved to basically survive in a certain set of circumstances. You know, we've been hunter gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years longer than we've been <laughs> living in a digital mm. dystopia of, you know, a thousand bits of content coming at you every second of the day and bad news from all around the world coming at you and mm. this high speed, high pressure life that never stops. You know, there's no time to think or process anything. And we're just not designed for that as far as I can tell. So is that why do you think that we're seeing this massive surge in mental health problems, you know, everywhere we look? Yeah, that will be a big part of it. Um, I think it's kind of weird to think like our brains are built for it. Like the, the, the smartest parts of our brain are built for it, technically, because they built this world. You know, they, they, we are this smart because we got, you know, this world only exists because we did, we made it so. But there's a, often a big difference between like the topmost part, the most human parts of our brain, the neocortex, the one which evolved the last like half million years or so, and the deeper parts, which control emotions, you know, like an instinct and reflexes and deeper processing. <clears throat> and they are still a big part of our, you know, our mental state, our existence. Right. And I sort of made the analogy to uh, currently what we've got in our heads. It's like trying to install like the latest operating system, like uh, Windows 25 or like, iOS, whatever it is, onto an old laptop, which, you know, it's, it can handle it, it can handle it, but it's not, it's not built for this. You know, it's like it's whirring on, so getting really hot, and you know, it's like something goes, uh, slows down a bit, and so it is. You know, it can do it, but it's they weren't expected to do this. Right. It wasn't built for this. Uh, so our brains are all so fast. So we all we have all these complex modern, you know, uh, insights and intellectual abilities on. You know, uh, on like almost like a steam-driven like an instinct and emotion system, and that's where the problem lies a lot of the time. So yeah, you can you, know, you can become aware of I don't know uh, a drought in Africa leading to starvation. I've talked about the eighties and stuff, or wars going on left, right, and centre, but localized in these particular regions, which won't ever really affect you unless you count in the economical you know, fallout left, right, you know, which are settled and many. Um, but you're aware of it, so you can see like these people being you know. I mean, horrific things happen to them. And yeah. you know, like, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to take some money to that. But you, emotionally, you're just seeing that happen and you're feeling the emotions from it. And you can't really, you, know, you can't stop it unless you shut yourself out from it. But you still know it's there because you've seen it now. And these things are you know, ongoing. Um, but also, we can be stressed out by things yeah. which 
happen in our, or could happen in our world, which are so sort of hypothetical, uh, you know, not even intangible, but um, uh, look, like we can be scared of uh, climate change, for example, or economic downturn. Like I, people panic, like, oh, I, gotta, I might lose my job if I don't make rent this month or if I don't save up enough money uh, to, to buy a new house from the you know, these are all long-term issues like well, the idea like you could lose your job for example is something which might never happen you know you just keep working away like your employer isn't that you know there's not fastidious about what you do it's always going to be a back of your head thing and but it never really goes away so the stress it causes is triggering the same part of your brain which be which would cause stress of you know, beating a tiger or like a predator or you know being in the middle of woods and starving and stuff. So that's all. It's all the same process. So it triggers the same fear response that our ancestors had, and they heard a wolf nearby. And um, but when you're in the wild, this stress response it's almost always quite short term. Yeah. It's in okay. So either I beat wolf, wolf goes away, or I'm dead. Either way, problem solved. You know, it's actually you know, I can stop being scared now. But. Now we've got this ability to sort of think, oh, what if, what if I lose, what if the economy doesn't go so well and I lose my job or my investments don't pan out? Right. There's no end to that. Like, you know, <laughs> if you do lose a job, in which case you're stressed, there's always a case of, I might lose my job. Like, how do you, uh, how do you know you're not going to? Like, yeah. There's no way to rule that out. Or, you know, like, what well, if like, like climate change or what if all these expectations we have, what if I'm not married by 35 or if I don't have kids by 40 and then all my lifelong goals are out the window? Like, well, that's, these are all hypothetical situations which stress you out based on social expectations and norms which you don't yeah. you wouldn't normally subscribe to and it brings so adept at finding things to worry about there's something 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 called counterfactual thinking where we worry about things that not only don't happen they didn't happen and cannot happen and we worry about them anyway like if you run across the road and there's a car coming you didn't see it it just misses you You'll be stressed about that for days. Because what if it hit me? Yeah, but it didn't. That that did not happen. Like the past is the past. You cannot go back and then run in front of the car a bit slower and have it hit you. Yeah. But that's like your brain's going, ah, oh, that was a close call. We need to dwell on this so you never do it again. So you know, that was a that was a bad call. So I'm like, remember this, remember this, learn from this. I'm not gonna let it go until you promise me you'll be good. Right. And, you know, right. Uh, so you know, so it does like it weighs on you. So there's so much stuff a brick. Right. Brings something called the threat detection network, which anything we sense which could potentially be a, a hazard or danger to us is sort of like latched onto and our, our, our internal system. We go right, that's keep an eye on that. You know, you have low level stress response just to make sure you don't forget it. And chronic stress is like the Achilles heel of the brain. On the for that seems to be the underpinning cause of a lot of mental health issues, particularly the main ones like depression, anxiety. Like this constant low-level stress, which our brains didn't evolve to deal with, because we thought stress is stress is like the, the first part of the fight or flight response, and that's meant to be fight or flight. You know, something happens to get to make it go away. So low-level constant stress isn't something our brains sort of de- were right. ever meant to be dealing with, and that's like the trigger for a lot of mental health problems. So, you know, it's obviously more complex than that, but that's the general running theme of a lot of it. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's 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 funny isn't it it's like we've got the best computer in the world in our inside our heads but there are these surprising 
kind of blind spots within it. Like mm. the fact that it can't understand the difference between there's a wolf in front of you and something you just imagined in your head. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'd think a computer as powerful as the human brain would be able to understand the difference in that. The fact that it can't and that, and that the stress response and everything um, is the same for both of those things, the hypothetical and the very real threat is, um, I find that fascinating. And it feels like quite a shocking design flaw, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I mean, that's um, that was a focus of my first book. I just called it Idiot Brain because the reason I sort of got into it, uh, the whole writing about it, uh, was because I, you know, I'm an interest and have been for 20 years in some form or other. Um, but I was just interested in the brain generally because I'm from like the South Wales Valleys and not a lot of scientists there. And I, again, this isn't an insult to the intelligence of my my peers, my my kin, my folk. Um, but it just wasn't the done thing. Um, and but I was sort of different than my my friends and family. And as I was wondering, why why am I this oddity? You know, this anomaly in this world, which is mostly focused on rugby <laughs> and, and other things uh, of that sort. So um, you know, I just kind of became interested in my own quirks and uh, thinking what's something about my brain which is different. And then I thought, you know, what is it about brains? And it sort of snowballed from there. Um, but anyway, when you start doing your science, if you're a big fan of the brain, you slowly but surely realize, all right, it's not perfect. It's not, um, it's not like, you know, it's not to this. Because the, the mainstream sort of portrayal of the brain I've always had issue with. Not that it's sort of, you know, necessarily wrong, but it's very, very um, <clears throat> overly positive. You know, it's like almost a hagiography. People say, like, human brain, the most amazing thing you've ever encountered the most complex object in the known universe it can do this it can do that it's all wow mm. whiz bang golly wow uh but look, the flaws are always ignored or overlooked and i do think that's right. can be unhealthy because if even you keep getting told your brain is brilliant and magic and amazing and yeah, then it starts going wrong you have like a mental health problem that feels like something even more deeply flawed with you Whereas I, it's actually, you know, it's actually a, a huge hodgepodge of countless different evolved systems over millions and millions of years, which don't get on or work against each other or, you know, you know just do things in a roundabout way. And I think that's more impressive, the fact that it is this big, glorious mess we've sort of ended up with and we've achieved so much with it. And it's got all these flaws, but we, we sold on anyway. And I think that's a more inspiring, a more healthy outlook. And that's my first book was about that. Like, you, you think the brain's great? It's not. Here's why. But, you know, it's great that we've got all this and we're still, you know, sold it on. We still push ahead. And I think that's a more, um, you know, more upbeat message, a more healthy one. So I try to push that where I can. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, I, and, it's, and it's true, I guess. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a bit like loving someone despite their flaws, isn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, it, when you look yeah. at the wonders of the world that we've created with this thing, it's fucking insane when you think about it. Yeah, that's like the analogy I use. Like when you start studying neuroscience as a fan of the brain, it's like moving in with someone you love. You know, you still you still love them. Obviously, you don't like you think it's great. You know, now we spend all our time together. Then slowly but surely, you start to realize, oh, okay, they're not they're not perfect. Then you know, they, they, have, they have issues. Like you know, in the bathroom for forty five minutes again in the morning. That's that's well, that's that's, not, that's a long time. But, you know, it's fine. Then uh, it's like oh look, the toilet seats up again. <laughs> well, again, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, they keep doing that snort. That's it's, it's it's charming. It's charming. It is. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you get the point of thinking, I'm not going to kill them, but I think about it often, which is one of those sort of relationships. The effects are still there, but the, the reality is also you know, becoming more manifest. And that's, again, for a long term, that's probably healthier, isn't it? If you keep deluding yourself that it's all fine and perfect, and then yeah, yeah. when it's not, because it won't be, because that's not how life works, then yeah. 
It's something you, you're far more ready for it. You're far more like, you know, aware. Well, from what I understand, and I correct me if I've got this completely ass backwards, um, brains have this amazing ability to um, constantly evolve and upgrade themselves, and they? to lay new pathways within the brain and to kind of get rid of old ones, this thing called neuroplasticity. Oh, yeah. Is that a thing, or is that something which I've either completely misunderstood or is being missold to us by the happiness industry? Because <laughs> there is such a thing, I think. You know, the idea that you can change your thinking patterns and that then the old negative um, thought patterns, to, to use that as an example, will kind of fade away because your brain no longer needs them. And you can relay uh, new positive pathways by by changing your thinking process. Just to mm. use that as an example, is, is neuroplasticity a thing or have I either got it wrong or is it not what they're saying that it is? No, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that neuroplasticity is a thing. It's probably the thing. It is like the, the brain's, it's what the brain essentially is for, what it does. That's why it, that's right. why it is what it is and can do what it can do. Because I think there was this idea for a long time that once you're an adult, your brain's like set it's in place and um, like you're running off you know, a few installed programs and that's it. That's your lot for life then. Enjoy yourself. But yeah, no, I think it's, obviously it's more plastic when you're younger, when you're still developing because you know, having to, you know, um, the analogy I have is like when you're young, like, uh, you know, especially a child, if you're, all the materials being delivered. If you look at the brain as being like a house, like uh, all the materials being delivered, you know, the plans have been drawn up. People have been saying, well, that should go here, that should go there. And like, later childhood to teenage years, that's like the um, you know, construction has started, scaffolding is up, foundations are going in, and you know, like last-minute changes are happening. And when you've hit, ad- hit, hit adulthood, the house is built. Um, so like you've got the walls, you've got the foundation, you've got the, the, the allocated space. That's sort of what you've got for now. Like you can't really expand beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but you can. Furniture's in. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah. That's it. But, yeah, that's you. But you can remodel. You can take a wall out. You can put a wall in. You can add an extension. You can, I don't know, add, add a roof. And take windows out. You can put things here and there. You can install solar panels. You've got still got a lot of flexibility. There's not as much as you did. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so look, that sort of plasticity we still have. It just takes a while. I think that's what people sort of don't appreciate that. Uh, you know, we obviously have you know, constantly changing brain stuff because like that's how memories are formed. Every new memory is new connections being formed between neurons, new synapses, which is great. You know, that's a, it's a that's a fundamental part of our brain. The brain is always changing. The only unchanging brain is a dead one, and that's um, and that's no good to anyone. A static brain is not a brain at all, really. That's not something we can do anything with. So, you know, neuroplasticity is a huge part of it. And yes, we can. Uh, we rewire, uh, we change and adapt our modes of thinking. That's the whole point of uh, therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Like it's sort of essentially saying, you think this way. This is your pathway that your thoughts take, A to B to C to D. Um, that's what you've built up over time. That's what your brain's learned to do. It's not a healthy route, you know. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like a route through a bad neighborhood or it's a route through like a, a bad mm. road, which is wrecking your car. So, what we need to do is to work out a different path. So, we, rather than go from A to B to C to D, we go from A to E to J to L, loop back round to E. You know, that's sort of right, right. It's a safe route. It might take longer, it might you know, take a while to figure it out, but it is, um, it's a safer one, it's a healthier one to, to go down. That, yeah. It's not doing the damage of the, the other the other route. And yeah, so it worked it out. It's like trying to find a map. Okay, so if I keep thinking like this, what if I think like this instead? And, and sometimes like that can become the dominant way of thinking. And therapy <clears throat> doesn't finish. You know, it's it's worked. It's it's it, you are. You never use the word cured for mental health stuff. You know, you've, you 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 can cope. Yeah. Now you've managed. You've you've adapted. Uh, whereas sometimes it can be a lot more 
persisted. Like addiction is obviously one which very hard to get rid of that because it happens at such a fundamental level. Like the, the deep buried reward pathways in your brain have changed. They've reached out to connect to your thinking centers. And those, you know, very rarely just go away. Um, they could become less powerful, but they're still there and they can be easily reactivated by, you know, that's why you know, addiction often requires constant vigilance. You don't sort of just ignore it because I'm fine. I'm cured. I can just have a drink again. You know, like that, that part of your brain, which led to addiction is still there. It's just dormant. Right. You know, it'll take, it'll take, it'll be very easy to trigger this. And, um, uh, so, so things like that. So like, like people have depressive spells, like, you know, those depressive links in the brain, uh, not being used right now, but stress can happen. They can become more forceful. Then you fall back into it, and um, you know it's that's why mental health is like an it's a journey rather than here's the full stop. It's like you know, it's good. now yeah. we're going this way. Okay, let's take this route. Let's use this car. Let's use this this these supplies and medication is often no mental health medication psychotic medication is you know but often not it's usually a way of making the brain a bit more flexible. So, you know, changing the right. balances, changing the levels, which means, okay, this particular sequence of thoughts be, which keep us in this negative state, uh, now our brain a bit, a bit more give, a bit more flexibility, a bit more adaptability. That's why I'm a lot of work in the psychedelics recently. I went to a big conference and stuff, and they are, you know, looking at the next big thing in mental health medication because they do sort of almost have like a snow globe effect in your brain they sort of like just shake it up because like that's that's where you have these weird trips because like all the barriers in your brain they're just temporarily shut down but that breaks mm. it does make your brain more flexible more you know, there's a lot more uh, plasticity in it so and if you can combine that with some therapy then you can form these new pathways quicker and easier than you would with just pure therapy alone so i combined it that's more fun as well yeah but it, it was it was i did i did partake in some uh, therapy. <laughs> i was gonna was, say i'm uh, sure you did yeah, it was very effective. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I say it was effective. The problem I had was I don't know what ketamine therapy is like. I and mean, I did know. So um, that's a problem solved, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to sort of belittle uh, anyone's proper problems, but that was, 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 that was my whole point. So I guess that was an easy one to fix. That's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense as well, actually, when you think about it. I mean, it's I have noticed that there does seem to be a growing interest from the scientific community in psychedelics. I'm seeing a lot more stuff now, like, studies with very positive results you know showing the uh the positive effects that psychedelics can have mm. and it's great because for far too long psychedelics have been kind of in the stewardship of like the hippie cliche haven't they you know the kind of acid trip <laughs> expand your mind bro and all that sort of stuff but it seems as if there is actually now a growing kind of scientific interest in the efficacy of psychedelics and it does seem to be some truth to what the hippies were saying as much as i hate to admit that yeah i mean the uh, I think the scientific community wasn't, uh, they, they technically weren't the ones who were opposed to them. Like they were, they'd been kind of keen to keep researching these things for many years. It was more of a political pressure which stopped them doing it because, mm, of course, yeah. It was just really bad timing. So, associated with psychedelics and the, you know, the counterculture, the hippie movement was obviously going to put it at very, very deep odds with the, the Nixon administration who brought yes. in the, um, you know, the war on drugs and stuff. And that was, um, and the, uh, was it, uh, the, the Reagan stuff like that, that was very much, um, you know, that, that was a big blow for psychedelic progress and research. And they were, you know, obviously there were people who were not treating them with respect they deserve at the time as well. Like some Stanford professors just giving them out to students going, yay. Like, okay. Maybe, maybe don't do that. That's not, that's not <laughs> ideal. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they got good reviews and their student feedback, but uh, <laughs> a lot of flowers drawn on them, but like just big handprints. <laughs> but uh, yeah, obviously that, that gave a bit of a, bit of a sour taste in the mouth. But, um, 
obviously South Wales was the world's biggest producer of LSD for quite a while, wasn't it? Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Operation Jenny. It's, it's a musical about it, I think. Um, oh, wow. It's a it's a community in like mid Wales, which was just churning out like half the world's LSD. Cause, uh, Shit. It's like so remote. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun story that obviously they wanted to do this big bust. So a lot of undercover cops and stuff moved into the area. Uh, so like we had, they had the, the dealers, or the producers sort of being in the sky local community and the cops and all the local Welsh people going, well, they're clearly the drug ones. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's mid Wales. Everyone knows everyone else. Like, so, so these just cops. Just, so, are you a cop or what? <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> so, a very, a very Welsh story, apparently. So, uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> wow, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I have no know, idea. Like, we're not really good at picking ourselves up sometimes, are we? Like, is we? I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. all the world's coal, and half the world's LSD. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a strange track record for a nation. <laughs> I know that's bloody amazing, bloody hell. Well, I, I did a fair amount of that when I was um, in my early twenties. You know, on the uh, uh, yeah, by uh, thanks to the um, the aforementioned Welsh countryside, um, I just went and picked my own. You know, and uh, had a great time. But that was um, yeah, many many years ago, and I haven't really had the guts to uh, to open up that Pandora's box again. I don't know if my brain, I don't know, if, I don't know what would come out now at this age with everything I've I've been through since. You know, but at the time, wonderful wonderful experiences on psychedelics. Mm, they're a lot more friendly than people realise. Think think this whole is sort of deeply serious power thing is um, it's more of a political ideological uh, image that was generated right. to deter people. But of course, it, you know, there is actually a bit of a friction right now because like, I was in America and like, they, they're really into, there's so many people invested in making psychedelics the next century legalized cannabis like because it'll be worth trillions if it does take off as they want to do. So lots of financial interest, a lot of economic interest and capitalist interest in making these psychedelics more available. But they sort of brushed up against the scientific community or like, going, whoa, 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 guys, you know, these, these things could be great for everyone, you know, if you use them wisely. But they're not toys. They're not like chewy sweets. These things are incredibly powerful substances. You don't just give them out like, you know, like vitamins. These are, you know, you need real supervision. I mean, recently, like, obviously, Matthew Perry passed away and it was said to be because of ketamine. Um, so it, what I said, he was taking ketamine therapy. Obviously, he's always struggled with his mental health and addiction issues. You take ketamine therapy, but um, I think the news sort of did, I think, cynically, underhandedly conflate the two. And he was taking ketamine therapy, and he passed away from ketamine-related uh, in um, misadventure, whatever it's called. But his last therapy was like two weeks earlier, and he clearly found obtained some ketamine himself. It was because obviously he knows that world. I mean, it's the middle of Hollywood. I'm sure there's plenty of people who have it. Um, and took it by himself in his hot tub, which is probably one of the most common causes of death when it comes to ketamine use, because it's it's a dissociative. It completely shuts down your body. And if you're in water, that's obviously, I mean, it, it's one of the things like, but he said, of course, yeah, but then you don't think it when, no, it's just a recreational drug, isn't it? It's not uh, yeah. something you do. But it's these are the things people don't take into account when they go. It'd be great if like, these psychedelics were available to people who needed them and were, you know, were effective treatments, but just give them out all the sundry. You're asking for a lot of trouble there because they get, again, they're not toys. They're not, yeah. Uh, they're not like, it's not like a cigarette. These things have a hell of a powerful punch to them. And oh, yeah. That could, that could make you do some very unwise stuff. 
Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, they, they are very, very powerful. I, I remember just lying on my friend's couch, looking at the ceiling, looking at the Artex, just laughing my ass off at the clouds moving, <laughs> you know, just, and the walls changing color. And what I, what I found fascinating about it was that it's not like a trippy kind of, um, synthetic reality. It's a real reality. So I could be talking <laughs> to you as I am now, and the wall behind you could change from red to yellow, and it would, it would look yellow. It was almost as if my senses and my brain believe that to be a completely different color and it made mm. everything made perfect sense it's a very strange thing for me at that young age it kind of made me realize the um mm. the fiction of of what we perceive as being reality i mean if that reality can completely change yeah. within the space of an hour or two and i'm seeing colors that weren't there and things moving that aren't moving and stuff then what does that say about the reliability of our senses we've just bought into one version of reality which in actual fact is just a projection from mm. within inside our mind yeah, I mean, I think that's something I'll agree that applies to everything because ultimately, the whole the, our whole existence is boils down. Or our whole existence boils down to like tiny impulses being transmitted along our brain cells. So that's actually our whole reality is that, and there's nothing right. else. Uh, that's, that's our that's our absolute baseline because obviously everything that happens to us is, in some level, neural impulses because that's how our brain works, which does lead to a lot of sort of interesting things like um you know like schizophrenic hallucinations like uh, audio hallucinations people hear voices uh what uh, that's believed to be like the because we, we, we often like think to ourselves and you know, we have a sort of internal monologue and you know our brains recognize okay this is internal so i don't hear that this is external it's all being processed in the language area and uh, things like schizophrenia that sort of breaks down that ability to tell between the two right so your brain doesn't recognize that this activity is from an internal source rather an external one. So you start hearing it, sort of being as, okay, so that's, well, there's language there, I guess that must be someone talking. And then you sort of start hearing this internal monologue and coupled with the negative emotions because of all the, the inter, in, in, internal turmoil, it becomes quite negative. So you have this constant hallucination that someone's telling you bad things because obviously that your brain's lost the ability to separate, to keep the dividers between right. internal and external stuff. And you know, a lot of things can be explained like that. I mean, Done a lot of work recently on parasocial relationships and that you know, people, which is where you become deeply emotionally invested in someone and they don't know you exist. And obviously, you've, you've got a podcast, you know, you're, you're a member of band, you've got, you've got fans and stuff. These people who are invested in you and you have nothing against them, you just haven't met them, you don't mm. know them, you don't know who they are, what they do. So it's not two ways, it's a totally one way relationship. But they are, they're all in. You know, these people are very invested, especially right. with someone like you know, Taylor Swift or every huge names like that who have these massive you know fan bases oh, yeah. people who have to worship them but when you think about it too your, your actual friends your you know, your real life relationships most of those are based on your internal representation of that person right like you don't spend all day every day with your friends you met them you know them you like oh they say this they think less they say they talk like this these are my memories of them and they're your friends because your brain has this like representation of friend in your brain and now we've uh, created a world where you can learn all about someone to create that without ever meeting them. Mm. You, can, like, you can follow their YouTube channels, you can yeah. follow their posts, their TikToks, right. and read about them and magazines. So you've got all this information. Like, I know this person. They're, they're this. They're, I know where they're born. I know what they're married to. I know what they like. I know what they dislike. I know what they sound like. I know where they were last week because of the festival they were at. So I know all this yeah. information. So I can create this representation just like a regular friend that I'm deeply emotionally invested in. It's like a relationship, yeah. But they don't know me. They've never met. Yeah. yeah. It's a parasocial relationship. It's totally one way. But, um, yeah, we have that power now, which is uh, odd to <laughs> think about it. 
Oh, it's crazy, isn't it? I suppose it's just one of the yeah the the other ways in which we're living in a in an environment now which is completely at odds with the one that our brain spent so long developing to su- survive mm. in. You know, um, social mm. media is a crazy one. I think it's it's amazing in many ways, and and the gifts of the internet are, are wonderful in so many ways. But there, there's also um, as with everything, and, and you've sort of alluded to this on your previous point, it, we need to manage it a little bit. It's not just like hey, you know, just taking lots of psychedelic drugs. You know, these things need to be done and managed in. In, in a very specific mm. way and i think it's the same with social media stuff, because it can be very very unhealthy can it a relationship with social media is one that needs to be managed i think where you have a cut off time or and, and also an understanding of the fact that it's not fucking real as well you know what i mean there's a real world out there mm. just because your friends are all crushing it on instagram doesn't mean you know that uh, you're you're the you're the only loser that hasn't got their life in order you know no that's actually a really valid point one of raised a few times in that um we've heard of doom scrolling and like, I try to coin the, the phrase glam scrolling or like the, the emotional alt, alt, which is basically going through Instagram and looking at, oh, beautiful person, beautiful person, beautiful life, beautiful person, wonderful person, successful, because that sort of gives you the idea that you are, you know, these, this is how other people's lives are. We know they're not. Obviously, someone, an influence on Instagram is you know, polished nine, nine ways from Sunday. Like it's all, you know, is completely stylized, completely you know artificial in yeah. that respect. I mean, they are, they're probably are a beautiful person to look at, and I yeah. don't really know them, but they are like all these images are completely tailor made to be, to look like that. But obviously, you don't see their flaws. You never see their flaws, but you do see your own. Yes. So in your in your head, your brain's going, okay, so that's how people are. They have these wonderful lives, wonderful existences. Here's mine. They're like they're the, the pants on the side and the dusty carpet that I haven't hoovered yet, and the dishes in the sink, and. Yeah. And you see it on reflection, like, like you see your bad side, you see like your blemishes and stuff. Like, oh, I'm, uh, everyone else is beautiful, I'm not. I guess I'm awful. And then that impacts your mental health. And one of the things I've sort of tried to raise the alarm about with social media, uh, things like Facebook, Twitter, whatever you want to, you know, whichever one you're into, it's um, one of the biggest dangers I think is that the fact now, whatever ridiculous idea you have, you will find someone who agrees with you. And that's isn't healthy. I think that's uh, when you know, in the past when you, you people have, people always have wild theories and ideas and suggestions about how the world works or should work, and it's social feedback which allows these ideas to flourish or not. Because we are again we're a social species, right. and other people has always have always been our main source of information. Even even today, like we can have reams and reams of peer reviewed expert analysis and papers saying this is the thing that is happening. This is how it works, and one person goes, "Ah, yes," but you know friend of mine works for the FBI and he said no was, oh you know so suddenly because like because you've got a, that's, that's a person like, yeah. we are built to right. connect to people that's why these influencers and TikToks and stuff they are the ones that sort of like have a much bigger impact you can see them they are relaying an emotional impact and a message to you yeah. and as opposed to dry text and stuff like that so um so like when you imagine like in the 80s when they you know sat made to the pub you just go yeah you know what I am um, I think the world's actually flat like, ah, flat earth day. Like, he's been mocked for the next yeah, 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 two, yeah. Two, two, two years. All right, Trev. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, cool. here he comes, <laughs> old flatty boy. <laughs> he comes, so, well, like, I don't want to say that again. And then you sort of learn, your brain yeah, learns, yeah, okay, yeah. That, right. don't right. say that. <laughs> that's, that's clearly not an accepted theory. But now, right. we can almost go and say, I think it's flat. He goes, oh, me too. Yeah, see, see, exactly. And yeah. Then, yeah. And then obviously, right. these people agree with me. And I tell you this outside, people mock me. Like, oh, okay. So your brain goes, well, these ones make me feel good. Those make me feel bad. So these are the ones I should stick to. And then, so if, you know, it becomes a self-sustaining thing. These become your group. This is your worldview. 
And people end up with these wild ideas of how the world should and does work based on their online interactions because nobody tells them, are you sure you're not an idiot? You know, <laughs> are you sure you're not sort of <laughs> totally talking out your ass? And that's, Barking yeah, mad. <laughs> like, that's a healthy thing to have. Like someone tell, can tell you, right. no, right. <laughs> that's stupid. Yeah. You know, people don't like that. You know, they sort of, sort of you can't know it's my opinion. Yes, it's your opinion and it's wrong, clearly. <laughs> okay. That's do. a great point. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we live in strange times, man. I mean, and it's only going to get stranger, I guess. You know what I mean? With the, with the AI is coming. I think we've, we've got a content tsunami coming our way that I just don't, I don't know if we're prepared to handle it. I mean, if we, if our brain's struggling now mm. to make sense of these things, then um, Jesus, I don't know what it's going to be like in 10 or 20 years, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the AI thing is, it's interesting. I mean, like I've, I've heard a lot of, it's also it's part of the familiar cycle, you know, new technologies on the way. And there's a lot of doom saying about it. Um, you know, I think people thought like once we have airplanes, oh, it's going to be planes, everyone's backyard, we're going to be, it's going to be awful and stuff. Right. Like that. So, so you know, there's always going to be some measure of middle ground. And you know, I think the you know, the AR thing is becoming worrying people, but it comes to replacing people with music and stories and art creations. I don't think that's as big a risk as people think it is. I mean, the general mass produced stuff, yeah, that's you know, something you don't need quality for, but good stories, like good music, emotionally relevant stuff. It's, I think that's still something machines are not going to get because we we have this ability. Like AI art, we've all seen it. It also has this similar sort of glossiness to it, this artifice, which yeah. you know, yeah. don't relate to it. Like that's, that looks wrong. It looks off. It looks, you know, like there's something about it, which is like, uh, because, you know, we, you know, machines know that like, they're very reductive. Like uh, these are the features of art. Therefore, I'm a replicate these in this way it doesn't work but as if someone like um you know we see those people who can make photorealistic paintings with like just a pencil or like a ballpoint pen it looks glorious looks wonderful and it doesn't bother us in the same way because something about the human brain is like so it's so adept at recognizing faces and nuance and emotional relevant stuff that we can recreate it and machines struggle with that i mean the example i like right. to use is even like on the train station platform and you know it's it's late, it's delayed because it always is. I mean that's just how this country works at the moment. <laughs> and then you get the you know, bing bong passengers on platform four. And sorry to report that the seventeen forty five train to London Paddington is delayed yeah, by approximately right. seventeen minutes. I am very sorry for the delay to this train. I'm like, but that I have, no, you're not sorry. You're a recorded voice. You're not here. You don't have any. Yeah, you yeah, have no yeah, investment yeah. in me in my situation. And so you're lying to me, and people don't like that. People really don't like the, that sort of that portrayal, that nuance, that sort of subtle offness. That uh, like, no, you're a machine. Don't don't lie to me. And you know, people don't like be having interactive with machines when they're trying to trying to be emotional. It's it's, it's a bigger deal than. Than right. a lot of uh, companies realize. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I am one of those um, doomsayers. Obviously, I think it's because my industry is one that I'm precious about, and um, and, and I guess we could see that the the grubby tentacles of AI work in their way into our world. You know, as we sort of speak. And I I wanted to ask you about music actually, because um, music has a fairly, from what I understand, interesting effect on the brain, doesn't it? The listening to it and also the performing of it, um, especially for um, younger children if they learn an instrument i think it's because it exercises certain um parts of the brain simultaneously that they don't get elsewhere mm. is there any merit to that what is what effect does music have on the brain as a listener whether they're adult or young and the playing of an instrument is it, it, what, what's what's behind that 
Yeah, well, McLean is itself you know, um, a good skill to have, especially if you're adept at it, because it gets back to neuroplasticity. It's a skill, it's a sort of it's a mechanical skill. You, know? you have to play something which you wouldn't otherwise do uh, if you weren't um, a musician. It's like um, you know, a, an expert piano player, their motor cortex, the part of the brain which is responsible for like fine finger movements, is usually much bigger than the average person's because they do that a lot. You know, like I, I type a lot, but it's, you know, it's a set keyboard. I'm just doing words, whereas to play music and sort of keep my hands round and press the keys in the right zone. So with such precision and such dexterity, your brain goes, okay, that's well, that's something I need to do. Is it okay? Well, I better build up the resources for that. And the brain goes, okay, so finger movements is important. So let's make that bigger. Let's make that bigger. And um, if you're a singer, like you know, your vocal skills become more and more adept because your brain's Okay, so voice is important. All right, okay, let's shunt more resources to the voice and take them away from less important stuff, you know, like you know, right, football yeah. skills or whatever, you know, whatever you're not into, you know, something. Else. So you know, it does, you know, it does really affect you in that. And obviously, it makes your you know, your perception of sound and harmony and rhythm is advanced and things like that. So, but the listening to it, it affects you in multiple ways, on the from very basic to very complex. So the basic level, like you know, rhythm and beats and stuff, they they sort of inspire us. They sort of have this sort of like resonant connection to the basic part of our, you know, some people argue it might be a heartbeat thing. You know, if you're, you know, you're sort of listening to your own heartbeat and it's going faster. So you feel like, oh, that's that's a fast heartbeat. So that must mean adrenaline is required. And then you become more motivated and things like that. And also the emotional content of music will all impact on your, you know, your emotional senses. If you know, music can sound sad or can sound angry. And this lets you experience it itself you know if you listen to angry music like uh, if you're into heavy metal you experience that anger right. that's a sort of safe setting like you know, i'm just i'm just i'm just general angry i don't have anything to be angry about i'm just feeling the anger because this music is pumping it out of me and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people who are into heavy metal are the least angry people overall because their brains have a lot more exercise when it comes to being angry you know they'll say they so when they think that when anger happens to them they go ah okay i know how to deal with anger yep you no know, like you know, process it like this. Okay, yeah, fine, fine. Okay, let's all let's all calm down, everyone. You know, so you know, the brains are adept in it. It's like it's like a workout, you know. And um, same as sad music. Sad, sad music is very therapeutic because it helps you process sadness, which we all have in some shape or form. And that uh, you know, so that's why people like who are sad listen to sad music and then right. feel better. Your brains channel these emotions. Like I said, when you process emotions, you need yeah. to be able to feel them too. So it allows you to feel these things in safe, controlled ways, which is great. You know, but also <clears throat> has you know makes you sad for a bit. You know, people don't like that necessarily, but it does. You know, it's beneficial. And um, and then above that, we have like sort of the, we recognize the complexity of music. You know, the the the, the nuance, the the details, the intricate structure. Rhythms and patterns. Humans love finding patterns, and like, uh, comp- the more complex, the better. So, music ticks that box as well. And you know, if you are a music aficionado, you can appreciate the 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 skill, the achievement, the the real sophistication of advanced music. Like some people love like free jazz or incredibly complex concertos. Some people prefer like pop, which is quite simple and straightforward. And both are correct, both are very valid in their assessments, but um, the more into it, the more you know, more aware of music you are, the more you can appreciate the the nuances, the complexities of the the, the more rich stuff, the more, more engaged and stuff. So, yeah, so there's loads of different ways in which music can affect you. It does, and it does all the time. So it's a very rich experience for, for your basic brain, and that's why it's such a popular format, I believe.
Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it, man. You know, that's another another brownie point for us musicians before the robots come and stamp us out of existence. <laughs> well, I'm conscious of the time because I did promise I wouldn't keep you too long. And I know you've got shitloads to do. But there's an element that I, I wanted to ask you about, which I haven't yet, which is the unconscious brain. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating that I can drive to Cardiff and not remember how the hell I got there. And, and for you know, many other things, you know, but my, my organs, my heart's beating, you know, these are all being managed by, as far as I understand, the unconscious brain. How the hell does that work? How is the brain able to drive me to Cardiff whilst I'm listening to a podcast or talking on the phone completely unaware that I'm actually doing this thing? How the hell does that happen? Yeah, I think a lot of the time you are aware of it. It's just like you don't remember it because um, it comes to remember <clears throat> what we remember, what we consciously remember. The... It usually works that the more emotionally stimulating stuff is what we remember the most. Um, it, we, ideally, that you know, we wouldn't have more say in what we remember because that means you wouldn't have to revise exams so much. Because you, know, mm. you need this information to pass this test, but it's boring information. Well, you've got to keep reading it again, 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 so it just beds in by force. Whereas, like, uh, you know, like I said, the embarrassing memories just stick with you forever because they were emotionally powerful. So if you have driven to Cardiff like 20 times in a month, it's the same thing over and over again. So your brain keeps going, oh, well, this is this keeps happening. I'm just, nothing, nothing to worry about here. So I'm just going to shunt this into the, you know, into the buffer and I'm going to focus on more, more important stuff. Like, you know, the, and so, so it can just become very unmemorable because they're all just the same over and over again. And you know, nothing of incident, nothing of incident happens. You know, they are routine. Routines become hard to remember because they're routine. Your brain goes, well, it's it just happens the same every time. I don't need to dedicate resources to this. I can focus on other things because um i think i think people have this idea like uh, the brain's like half and half half conscious half unconscious and it's not it's more like you know the conscious brain is like the the pilot and the unconscious is the plane so it's sort of you know, one right bright spark steering this massive vehicle of unthinking but powerful and you know, complex stuff uh because you know the conscious process is conscious thinking is really impressive but it's really demanding the brain like the frontal lobes they take up a lot of energy a lot of complex a lot of complexity and it's kind of a little, it's like a long-winded process and you have to go through all the different neurons involved because mm. reactions emotional reactions are quite fast because they're simple like a bang bang right. you know sort of when you touch a hot pan on the stove you <laughs> flinch you don't think hmm i wonder i'm experiencing a noxious stimulation i perhaps should remove my hand or perhaps i should ponder this some more like at which point your hands on fire and it just, that's no good no, so you have to do this instantly reactions um and yeah so like the more and more you do something the more your brain can feel safe and just shunt it into the unconscious it's like when you first learn to drive hmm. you know, that first time up by yourself is right. terrifying like you're just you're just hyper aware of everything around you because like, there's no instructor anymore there's no one's got any more pedals you've got like a one ton all on you. It's like, ah, you know, just, you just drive to the shops, you're just like a nervous wreck. But then over time, you know, it becomes second nature. You will just drive yeah. like two hours and just not even think about it. Like, eh, because you've done it before. Like, so you, when it's been, once a conscious mind has gone, okay, I've done this. I know how to do this. This is established. Okay. You, you guys take it. You guys in the back deal with this. I'm going to, because I need it for uh, unexpected stuff, novel stuff. So that's what our consciousness tends to focus on. Because you know, that's, yeah, that's what it's for, you know, so to, to deal with the unexpected, the unknown. And therefore, yeah, so that's why we don't tend to remember stuff which we do know, because we know it. <laughs> it's like, it's like oh, I, don't, I don't have to dedicate anything to that. That's well established. So let's look elsewhere for my stimulation. Well, what happened with me when I had my PTSD was um, I had 
things like that the were automatic, like driving, suddenly became things that I was consciously aware of. So I had driving anxiety for a few months because I was driving and I was aware of absolutely everything. The light coming through the trees, the, that guy over there, there's, there's someone on the bridge up there. And, and am I too close to the car in front? Am I not going fast enough? Am I going too slow? Can I, can I drive? Jesus, I, I don't know how to drive. And I was hyper aware of every micro kind of activity around me. Um, did I lean slightly to the left? Then, oh shit, does that mean, you know, why did I do that? Is my balance wrong? Um, and it was almost like my conscious mind had, be, had gotten in the way of what was normally an unconscious automatic activity. It's what was happening there. So also when you have PTSD, you've experienced something so powerful that you, your brain can't process it. It's like it's got so much emotion attached to it, so much negative emotion, so much fear and anger or whatever the actual experience was. It's like you know the, the normal processes whereby you sort of file that away in your memory and integrate it into your wider system. It's just too much. Your brain just can't do it. There's too much there, and it sort of <clears throat> leaks out and spills out. And it's like putting like a like a hot coal in a filing cabinet full of papers. You know, it's just like sits there smoldering and makes everything around it worse and charred and stuff. And um, and you know, again, it, it puts your uh, fight or flight system on high alert. It's right. like terribly bad thing happened. I haven't processed it, so I'm still you know, waiting for threats, waiting for dangers. And that part of your brain is like, oh, just constantly on. Like the amygdala is firing all cylinders. Right. And that will just like, they'll just be constantly there. It's, like, it's, like, it's almost like driving with the high beams on. You know, it's, you don't need them, but they're on. Right. And they'll be again blinded and like just drain your battery and stuff. So that part of your brain is active. So it's just looking for things. And even if they're not technically there, it's jumping on, jumping the shadows. Yeah. Right. So things which are, which, which were neutral before now aren't because anything's happening through the lens of this trauma, this trauma right. thing which happened, right? So trauma's still there, trauma there, trauma there, trauma there, trauma there, trauma there. It's like a background noise of trauma. And then everything becomes scarier, anxious, and stress-inducing because that part of your brain is just... You know, same, same thing happens with generalized anxiety disorders. Like that part of your brain is overactive. So everything becomes scarier, like everything's stressful. You, right. don't, you don't even know why. It's just like, that stresses me out. Why? I don't know. It just does. Because that part of your brain is thinking, right, everything's stressful. Everything, stress, stress, stress. And your brain's trying to make sense of it. It's going, right, I got stress here. Something must be causing it. It's it's that guy. No, it's that bush. No, got it's you. that bin. No, it's seagull. <laughs> Blue skies. Ah! And like, well, right, so right. it's uh, just very, very it's trying to find an answer to the stress, and it's not getting one because there isn't one. It's, it's all in the past. Well, that resonates perfectly with my experience, man. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, as we sort of come towards the end then, what can we do to maintain a healthy, well-functioning brain? Are there exercises we can do? Are there things we can take? The things we should try and avoid? What is the best way to look after this amazing computer that we got inside our noggin? Well, generally, people say, you know, like the you know, exercise in and of itself is always a good idea because you know, your brain is still an organ at the end of the day. You know, and again, it's not, not only fat shaming like that. There's loads of valid reasons why people can't exercise, but if you can, it's a good idea to do it because you know the biological system sustains your brain, and if it's in you know, it's, it's more it's more tip-top then your brain gets more stuff and more resources to do stuff with so you know general exercise and you feel that sense of achievement you feel like you've made some progress so that's good in and of itself um i guess like because i've been dealing with emotions lately and the subject of things and i think it's it's important like a bottle things up you know if you, you know, don't this is modern idea that you have to always be happy, otherwise something's wrong. And that isn't right. You know, it's the whole toxic positivity movement, which I have expressed my uh, dislike for many times. This idea of like live, laugh, love, you know, just, just always be happy, always be happy, 
That's all I need to do. And that's not how we work. That's not, no, the negative emotions, they're important. They're vital for a healthy brain. So if something bad happens, it's okay to feel bad about it. It's okay to feel sad or angry or afraid as a result of it. You know, nothing, nothing wrong with you if you are having a negative reaction to a negative experience. That's what should be happening. This idea that, you know, well, no, no, just, you know, look on the bright side, always find the positives, just tell yourself it's, uh, it's, it's all a learning experience. So if that helps, fair enough, but don't then say, like, don't, don't use that as a sort of like a, a means to shut down uh, any sort of negative experience. Like, right. It's all, you know, like, uh, you know, the only disability is a positive attitude. No, that's not, that's not how it works. Uh, no, sorry, a negative attitude. So you're going positive one, therefore you're fine. You don't need anything else. And, and I do find a lot of that is quite cynical and sort of, you know, mendacious because what it does do, this idea of, you know, positive attitude and like always <clears throat> strive forward is it puts the onus on the person. So if you are struggling, if you are going through a hard time and someone says, you know, well, why don't you try not being sad? Why don't you try cheering up? Mm. It's, like, it's all on you. This is all yeah. your responsibility. Right. And you no, know, that's not true. Like the people need support. People need help. I know a better society would be better for everyone, like mental health and poverty and, Destitution are heavily intertwined. Uh, so this whole movement of let's not focus on money. Let's not focus on well-being, which means like people in the NHS complain they're always giving these um, you know, resilience workshops. Like it's making more resilience to stress. Is all right, but then people seem to take that as now we you're resilient. So now we can give you all the stress. You know, we can we can hump any sort of massive workload on your shoulders because you, we've taught you to be resilient. It's like a blank check for more work. And and that's not really how any of us operate. So yeah, so don't deny your negative feelings. So feel, you know, they are valid, they are right, and you should be expressing them. Shutting them down is is one of the more unhealthy options we can that people are encouraged to do these days. Brilliant. Well, I guess that's a perfect place to lift off and let you get on with the rest of your day. Um, before we do that, can we let the people know what you've got coming up? Because you've got a massive body of work. Now, I'll put some links to your website and your socials in the show notes so that people can go and have a delve into everything that you've done so far. Um, obviously, we need to plug the, the latest book as well, Emotional Ignorance. But what have you got coming up? What are you working on currently? Um, I'm trying to definitely finish my uh, next book, which should be out in September, I think. Um yeah, I tend to churn them out when I can because <laughs> uh, I try to take advantage of what people still care what I think about stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I'm tr- trying to plug this book. I'll be popping around left, right, and center if I can. Um, yeah, I'm looking to segue into more video-based stuff because I keep getting told that you know text based is for granddads. You got to do you got to do visual stuff. Um, so all right, fine. Uh, yeah, so I'm just keeping on the website. I'll be uh, putting more stuff up there as and when I can, and uh, we'll go from there. So I'll, I'll be around. I'll be around. Well, I mean, there's a load of stuff on the website at uh, deanburnett.com. There's, uh, you've got videos on there already. You've got a bunch of, um, there's links to your amazing books as well, which include The Happy Brain, The Idiot Brain, Psychological, and of course, the latest one, Emotional Ignorance. The backstory to that book as well was something that I wanted to get into. I'm, if, if you wanted to go over it again, which I'm sure you probably don't. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm more conscious of keeping you, um, you know, to, on schedule today because I know you're busy. But yeah, I mean, you can hear that in Dean's previous interviews as well, where you talk about the, the person personal journey that led to the creation of that book which is uh which is very interesting what you went through to create that book and also the research and everything in the book and the the insights and everything that you've discovered through that journey as well are, are fascinating so i would urge everybody to check out dean's latest emotional ignorance before he rattles out the next one in a few months time <laughs> yeah. um and head over to deanburnard.com 
Thanks, man. Cheers. No, thank you, man. Thank you so much for you know giving your time so generously and you know giving us an insight into the fascinating world that you work within. And as we said at the start, you know, we've made it to the end and no brains have been blown or damaged in the making of this podcast. But Dean Burnett, thank you so much for your time, man. We'll let you head off and it's been absolutely brilliant to speak with you. I wish you nothing but the best and best wishes with the book. I can't wait to read it, man. Cheers, buddy. Bye. There we go, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dean Burnett. What an absolute ledge. Man, like my my mind has been blown by that conversation. So much awesome information in there. I definitely need to go back and re-listen to that one because uh we covered a lot of ground there, man. I'm just looking at the notes that I've been scribbling along as uh, you know Dean was uh, rattling off all that fucking awesome knowledge there. We've got em- emotions, um, neuroplasticity, evolution, you know, the brain's flaws, mental health, psychedelics, schizophrenia, social media, AI, the interesting effects of music on the brain, trauma, happiness, the unconscious brain. That's a lot of stuff, man. I think if ever there was a, a concise one hour 101 on the workings of the brain, I think I think we just did it. More specifically, Dean just did it. (laughs) I just pressed record. As I said, if you want to find out more about the brilliant work of Mr. Dean Burnett, please go to deanburnett.com. I will put a link in the show notes. There are videos there. There's a blog. There's a link to his amazing podcast, Why Does This Thing Exist?, which is hilarious, Um, and links to all of his books as well, including The Happy Brain, The Idiot Brain, Psychological, and his latest one, Emotional Intelligence. And there will be another one coming soon by the sound of it. So you better get reading, man. Massive thanks to our guest this week, Mr. Dean Burner, for being such a legend. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Whilst I got you, please subscribe to the Goddamn Podcast. Most of you still haven't done it yet. Come on, it's not a lot to ask, man. Get clicking. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the mailing list, please subscribe at jameskennedystuff.com slash tribe so that I can actually communicate with some of you people and let you know when I got new shit happening because the social media algorithms are just absolutely ridiculous these days. Social media has become a joke. Anything posted on any social media platform is reaching less than like 0.1% of its followership now. So you guys are missing out and it's really frustrating for the content providers. So join the mailing list. It's totally free. You won't get spammed and I can keep you up to date with all the cool stuff that you're missing out on. So that's James Kennedy stuff slash tribe. Get over there, whack your email address in, and we can hang out in in our own little community outside of uh, Zucker Dick's fucking monopoly. I'll be back next week with another brilliant guest. In the meantime, have an awesome week, and I will see you next time. Cheers, guys.